0: Young man, I have a maxim that I have always lived by. My name is Edward Champion, and this is The Bat Segundo Show. No one is more qualified to write your story than you are. The Internet Movie Database lists 75 actors who have portrayed Mark Twain over the past 93 years. Uh, You know. The earliest entry is Carl Fornes, who played Twain in a 1921 silent film version of the Connecticut Yankee in King Arthur's Court. I begin to see that... A man's got to be in his own heaven to be happy. Yet aside from Hal Holbrook, whose one-man show Mark Twain Tonight has been circulating theaters since 1954, there's something a little amiss about these fictional versions of Twain. Providence protects children and idiots. I know this is true because I've tested the theory. You see, these actors and those who direct them have presented Mark Twain as this jolly and avuncular figure. Huck was ignorant, he was unwashed, he was insufficiently fed. Someone who happily regales crowds with tales of jumping frogs when he's not dispensing advice to young hopefuls. But he had as good a heart as ever a boy had. But the man born as Samuel Clemens was often a savage wit. And if we're to reckon with the way in which he transformed American literature, well, We have to accept the darkness with the light, for the great humanist was also a ruthless man of feuds, someone still exacting stage-managed revenge against his enemies, with the carefully timed publication of his three-volume autobiography more than a century after his death. I met with Ben Tarnoff, author of The Bohemians, to get a more accurate and deeper appreciation of Mark Twain and the many other literary figures of the 1860s who helped open the floodgates of literary possibilities the wild and wonderfully busy city of San Francisco. Hey, so I am here with Ben Tarnoff, who was most recently the author of The Bohemians. Ben, how are you doing? I'm doing well. Thanks for having me. Thanks for being here. It was a great uh, trip down memory lane with all the San Francisco literary history, because I'm from San Francisco. Are you still in San Francisco? Or? I'm
1: not. I'm based out here. Actually, I haven't lived there since high school. But oh, I, really? But I go
0: back and visit my
1: parents still live there, uh-huh, so okay. I get back a lot. But you, you grew up there?
0: Uh, I grew up... Uh, Well, I was born in the South Bay, and then I went to Sacramento, and then I went to San Francisco to live there for 13 years, then I moved to Brooklyn. It's a beautiful city. I miss it. So, I mean, we have strayed quite a bit from the topic at hand, which is this amazing set of literary folk who emerged out of San Francisco and into San Francisco during the 1860s and the 1870s. Just to start off here, I mean, Mark Twain and Bret Hart seem to be the big stars of this book, but uh, what do you think it was about this particular area at this particular time that created this particular literature? Well, San Francisco in the 1860s has a lot
1: of advantages as a writer. Yeah. It's peaceful. You know, the Civil War never comes to California. So there's no fighting on the coast and there's no draft because Lincoln never applies the draft west of Iowa and Kansas. Yeah. So and, it's a great no place. No draft riots. Right, exactly. No draft riots. So it's peaceful, it's a great place to wait out the war. Uh, it's very rich because it's the industrial, commercial, and financial center of the region. So the massive amount of wealth that's being generated in the city finances a range of literary papers. Uh, And it's also very urban. Uh, It's got about 100,000 people in the 1860s and that makes it by far the biggest city in the region, really the biggest city west of St. Louis. And that population is pretty cosmopolitan. Because of the legacy of the gold rush, you have people there from China, from South America, from all different countries in Europe. And I think all of those are important factors behind producing the literary moment.
0: And for a while, speaking of St. Louis, uh, it had actually the largest building west of St. Louis in, in, with City Hall. That's right. For a while right. until, unfortunately, it got—I uh, got, can't really remember which building it was that actually uprooted it, but, uh, you know, a city of great uh, progress and, and great building. Um, I, I wanted to start off also by getting into the preacher, Thomas Starr King. He's this figure I have wanted to talk about for— ever, because I have read, I'm sure, as you have, the Kevin Starr books, the wonderful California Dream series. Uh, I'm grateful that your book has allowed me a chance to talk about it you. Uh, you know, it, it has always seemed to me that uh, without King, you could not have had the literary culture that emerged, because he was this really odd figure. He promoted New England writers, so he was kind of an establishment guy, but at the same time, he's also the guy who introduces Bret Hart to James Field, uh, Fields, the Atlantic editor, in January of 1862. Uh, Charles Stoddard this wonderful poet also held King up in great esteem. So you know he's almost this insider-outsider figure who seems to corral the many literary strands of San Francisco that are burgeoning during this time and forming this uh, this new kind of movement that you identify as as a sort of bo- bohemian movement. So I'm wondering, you know, what, what what is your take on Thomas Star King? Do you think that uh, that San Francisco would have been San Francisco if it had not been for that? And do you think that when the Overland Monthly appeared that actually that was kind of the replacement for Thomas Starking because at that point he had passed away? What, What of this? Well, Thomas Stark King is a fantastic figure. I think
1: he really is a forgotten founding father of California. He's so foundational politically, culturally, as you point out from the literary scene. He's a fantastic mentor figure. You mentioned Charles Stoddard. There's a scene in my book where Stoddard has just published his first poems in the big literary paper. He's extremely shy and nervous. And Thomas Stark King comes to the bookshop where he works and tells him personally how much he loved his poems. So he's a guy with a real personal touch and really cultivates these writers and offers them criticism. He's a he's an important figure from the point of view of the Civil War as well, which is, I think, how he's better known today because he travels throughout the state during the the first year or two of the Civil War and preaches the importance of California staying in the Union, which it probably would have stayed in anyway. Um, but King is certainly a very persuasive champion of the Union and uh, and of abolition. Yeah.
0: But in terms of his literary uh, contributions, I mean, he was, again, like I was sort of suggesting with this last question, this guy who both was there to rebel against and also this guy to, to garner favor with so you can actually get into some of the outlets. I mean, you know, how, how did that work? I mean, I, am I sort of perhaps overreaching with my estimation of King is this great mirror that Twain, Hart, and all these other people kind of, uh, you know, looked at in order to sort of find their own voice, to, to find their own particular perch to break into San Francisco journalism, literature, and all that. Well, I think he builds a link between the Eastern
1: literary establishment and San Francisco. You mentioned his introduction of Hart to James Fields, the editor of the Atlantic Monthly. He also is friends with Longfellow and Emerson and all of these kind of literary lions who are really the most famous writers in the country at that point. And he gives these wonderful lectures on American literature in San Francisco. So he absolutely is kind of a link between the East and the West. But he's also someone to rebel against. I mean, as the father figure, you're also trying to kill your father. And a lot of these guys, particularly Hart, you see him strain from that New England mold. Thomas Stark King sadly dies in 1864, um, young and prematurely. And in the coming years, Hart really develops his own style, which I think contrasts pretty sharply with those New England influences.
0: So what was essentially taken from King and even the New England influence? I mean, what made this particular area of the country the natural place to to establish new voice, original voice, a rebellious voice, an iconoclastic voice? Well, Thomas Starr King has this great
1: phrase in one of his sermons where he tells Californians they need to build Yosemites in the soul. And his point there, I think, is that they've been blessed with this majestic, epic, monumental landscape, this incredible natural beauty, and they need to create a culture and a literature, an intellectual scene that's commensurate with that great beauty. And the bohemian scene really takes that advice seriously. And the West, I think, is such a fertile place for a new type of literature to develop, which, which really does deviate from the path that King himself had hoped it would take. I mean, he wants California to follow closely in the footsteps of New England. He has a letter where he says California must be northernized thoroughly by Atlantic monthlies, by schools, by lecture halls. But the these... Uh, literary, uh, you know, the scene that he mentors after his death really takes things in a different direction. Yeah. But I think, you know, it makes good on his command to, to build Yosemites in the soul.
0: Well, it's interesting how we're talking about the variegated territories of California because Bret Hart would edit this poetry anthology and get into serious trouble because some of the rustic towns didn't like the fact that they weren't included and he was flummoxed with all sorts of poetry entries for this thing, and he ended up choosing a lot of poems that dealt in the metropolises. And so there was this rivalry, and Hart was accused of sort of being this kind of uh, florid sellout by some of the rustic towns. You point out in the book that actually the metropolises and the rustic towns and the mining settlements and all that had actually far more in common than they actually realized. So what what accounts for this fractiousness, fractiousness in territorial temperament, fractiousness in literary voices and, and literary temperament? Well, California is
1: a place where Everyone wants to be a writer, yeah. you know, and, and poets, Like Brooklyn today. Right? <laughs> exactly. It's like Brooklyn in 2014. But poetry in particular has a real prestige. You know, poets are pop stars. Yeah. Poems are read at every public gathering. Uh, you kind of need poetry in the public sphere all the time. And so all of these Californians, people who live in the countryside, people who live in the city, all think of themselves as a poet. So when Bret Hart is tasked with putting together a representative anthology of California poetry in 1865, he is overwhelmed with submissions and has a lot of fairly sarcastic, disparaging things to say about the quality of those submissions, and ends up producing this fairly small volume with mostly his friends, like Charles Stoddard and Ina Coolbrith. And this ignites a kind of literary war between the city and the country. So I, but as you point out, the distinction between the city and the country is not actually that great. I mean, the California countryside, in terms of the mining and the farming operations, is itself pretty heavily industrialized. We've got big economies of scale, a lot of heavy machinery, places like Virginia City in Nevada, where Mark Twain is for a few years— um, are highly urbanized areas. So the notion that it's these kind of he-men in the frontier versus the effete bohemians in the city, it's kind of not totally accurate representation.
0: Well, I mean, in in this sense, I mean, you're essentially saying that the sphere of influence in both Rustic Town and Big City is essentially homogenous, that people are are perhaps... Being inspired from the same physical things, I mean, what of what of literary tastes? What of the way that people express themselves? I mean, certainly, I, I isn't isn't there an argument to be made that uh, maybe uh, maybe the country guys were right? Well, I
1: think there's certainly a distinction in terms of literary taste. I mean, I think both camps are living fairly urban, industrialized lives, but they certainly have very different opinions about what constitutes good poetry. And Hart, in particular, who is the editor of the volume shies away from topics that he feels are too pastoral, you know, that have too much of a certain type of California flavor, yeah. which he associates with kind of the amateur poets. And he uh, he writes a parody of what one of those poems would look like in The Californian, which he edits. Um, but Hart really wants to push California literature in general to a more metropolitan um, to a more bohemian, to a kind of more sophisticated level and and is very, um dismissive of what he feels is the kind of amateurish literary karaoke quality of some
0: of the countryside poets. So in other words, uh, what is that sophisticated nature that Hart is demanding? I mean, what are we talking about? Are we just talking about endless poems devoted to just being in the middle of nowhere? (laughs) I mean, essentially, that's what he's railing against. He's asking California to take itself more seriously, to write about uh, civil, social, political Uh, topics? I mean, what what are we talking about here? Well, the problem with Hart in
1: these years, the kind of mid-1860s, is he's very good at being a critic. You know, he's very good at lambasting the quality of California literature, at its climate, at its, you know, its boosters and Philistines and capitalists, but he's not great at producing good literature of his own. And that comes a little bit later in the decade when he starts to write these wonderful short stories, uh, The Luck of Roaring Camp being the best known. And it's not until that moment that I think he really makes good on his earlier promise to redeem California literature.
0: Yeah, so he's essentially just quibbling with what he doesn't like in order to find out what he does like and what he can actually build from the ashes he demonizes, so to speak. Exactly, <laughs> yeah. 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 He's,
1: he's definitely in a more critical phase at that moment.
0: Yeah. So um, actually, one of the interesting qualities of Mark Twain's success is— uh, with the Innocents Abroad involves this interesting subscription model where you have door-to-door salesmen actually selling the Innocents Abroad like encyclopedias would in the next century. And it's fascinating because you have the wonderful Transcontinental Railroad. That has been built. You have all these people in various hubs. They need reading material, and this is how Twain makes his name. Um, But because of this particular literary approach, Twain does not get the respect that he clearly deserves by the snobby Eastern critics. And yet when he goes to England later, he's received by everybody. Uh, why do you think the, uh, there was a certain kind of diffidence to Twain at the time? Uh, I, I don't think it was necessarily just that uh, subscription model. Or, or could that be enough to stigmatize you, even the fact that you actually got through to people? I think
1: there's a lot of things stigmatizing Mark Twain in this period. I mean, just his appearance alone, I think, is is stigmatizing enough. He looks very disreputable. He speaks in this very peculiar drawl that makes a lot of people think that he's drunk all the time. So just him showing up, you know, the offices of the Atlantic Monthly, which he does in 1869 to thank a young editor named William Dean Howells for a favorable review, he— is always comment people are always commenting on his appearance. So that's a major factor. His style is also crude by the standards of the Eastern literary establishment. I mean when you read Longfellow for instance, the styles are very different in terms of just their prose. Yeah. And certainly how his material is being marketed is a major factor. You mentioned subscription publishing. I think of the analogy today as you know, digital publishing or eBooks, or maybe that's not an ideal analogy, but he is basically going directly to his audience. He's bypassing booksellers and is using these agents who peddle his book door to door, which horrifies the New England literary establishment. I mean, that is not what you're supposed to do to sell a respectable book. And he's a lecture personality. You know, he's essentially a stand-up comic, and he relies on that a lot both to make money for himself and also to promote his material. So I think all of these factors make it hard for Twain to climb the ladder of Eastern literary respectability, and it takes him decades.
0: Would you say, and I'd like to get into the lecture tour as well, the many lecture tours he made, and also uh, this figure, uh, Artemis Ward, who is America's first stand-up comic. That's right. Uh, is essentially the Spalding Gray century before his time. Yeah. Uh, you know, uh, Do you think that the stand-up, comedy lecture Turing actually stigmatized Twain more than any of the subscription models did. Is that safe to say? I
1: think it's it I would say both contributed in in ways because he's he's presenting himself as a public persona and he is directly appealing to this rising middle class of the post-Civil War period, where there's this incredible hunger for new print products. There's an explosion in publishing. These illustrated weeklies like Harper's and Scribner's appear, which are major competitors to the Atlantic Monthly, by the way. So New York is emerging as a media capital to, to compete with an older Boston literary world. And Twain very much belongs to that cultural shift. Yeah. Um, so he's basically doing anything he can to direct Connectly with that audience. Uh, and that happens with subscription publishing. That, hap- that happens uh, on the lecture circuit. In his extensive PR campaigns for his books, where he writes to everybody he knows to make sure that they'll all write positive reviews and sends out hundreds of review copies. I mean, he is a PR maven. Yeah, and, not a good uh,
0: businessman, but very good at negotiation and very good at pr- public relations, yeah.
1: Well, that's what's funny is that we think of him as a terrible businessman because later in life he bankrupts himself, yeah. mostly by investing in the stupid yeah. typesetting machine. But when it comes to marketing his own books, he's pretty sophisticated entrepreneurially. Of course, he um, he's not so good at spending money once he has it. Yes. But in this period, I think he does a pretty good job of, of
0: marketing his books. What of the iconoclastic nature of Twain in the San Francisco days. I want to talk about that because there is this misconception here from 2014, even with the the slow release of the three volume autobiography, right. uh, that Twain is this kind of avuncular figure who always has a cigar in his mouth and has a wonderful jumping frog story to tell everyone, uh, and is and is just a kind of ador- an adorable kind of guy. But he was extraordinarily vicious, iconoclastic, fearless in in taking out targets, willing to go ahead and spread lies and get them published in high places, willing to go ahead and pit people against each other, and absolutely intransigent when it came to maintaining a feud. um, You know, how much of of this was encouraged by Twain's temperament, and how much of this was encouraged by the general hustle and bustle nature of San Francisco in the 1860s?
1: Well, I'd say it's a perfect storm. I mean, Twain's temperament is explosive, as you know, and this is before he conceals it under this avuncular kind of man-in-the-white suit facade, which is really how we imagine him now, but that's really the twain of his last decade or yeah, so. Yeah. You know, and this is the twain in my book of his twenties and thirties, when he's still emerging, he's almost constantly broke, he's viciously competitive with his peers in the West, he's very ambitious, and he's terribly anxious and racked with fears of the future. He's convinced that he's gonna end up in the poorhouse. And this is, is very motivating, but occasionally overwhelms him. He even attempts suicide at one point in in San Francisco or, you know, decides not to at the last minute. Yeah. Or he doesn't have the guts to go through with it, as he says. Exactly. Exactly. But, you know, as you say, the Western literary scene is a perfect place to kind of make his personality even more extreme, particularly in Virginia City, where he gets his start as a Western writer. Yeah. And Virginia City is a wild boomtown. It's a bit like how I imagine the boomtowns now in North Dakota with the fracking. I mean, it's it was this incredible community in uh, in Western Nevada on Mount Davidson, which was the epicenter of the Comstock, Comstock load. And Twain is surrounded by... Violent, hard-drinking men—really, almost all of them are men—who shoot each other in the streets and provoke duels with one another on the slightest pretext. So it's definitely a place for Twain's extreme, explosive personality to
0: become even more so, or to be fit right in with the character of Virginia City and the character of San Francisco. Uh, I mean, this is this is really ha- has been kind of causing my head to spin in the last. Uh, uh, couple of weeks since I read your book, I've been I've been thinking very much about how literary movements come about because of a particular originality or freedom associated with a place. And, and in the case of, of what you set up in this book, I mean, I, I look to some of the kind of uh, more passive uh, approach that we see in Brooklyn, and I say, well, how can we generate, how can we be expected to generate uh, a new literary movement when everybody is playing it safe and they're pulling their punches? But Twain, is somehow capable of both enlarging his explosiveness and also using using this to sort of make money. Or I, I, that's, these two things seem totally uh, diametrically opposed at the same. Or or really was it this, the lecturer racket that allowed him to essentially maintain his own voice? That was really the way for him to be himself. I mean, if he didn't have that, maybe he might have become any old newspaper hack during the time. Is that safe to say? Well, I think without his lecture persona, he would probably not achieve
1: the same level of fame, because that was so key to how he popularized himself, and also key to how people perceived him. I mean, I think he's, you know, the thing we have to remember about Twain is that he's emerging in the first age of mass media in America, where you have this huge proliferation of newspapers, you have telegraph and railroad networks, and Twain is recognized, you know, he's photographed endlessly he's uh, people can recognize him in the street so he really is a celebrity in the modern sense of the term and his onstage performances are inseparable from that
0: well the question is is I mean he rarely when he was in San Francisco he rarely came home before midnight so really was it just a matter of uh, a, a kind of honing his marketing I suppose by going out into the streets of San Francisco and essentially knowing everybody in, much in the same way that we associate with Ed Koch <laughs> that that was kind of his sort of strategy really before he knew that he could make some money on the, on the lecture tour I mean I'm just curious.
1: Well he's you also you know I, I think there are certainly nights he's staying out until after midnight he writes this letter to his mother yes. I think it's his first visit to San Francisco, where he says, Mom, I'm staying up all night, which I think is partly, you know, he's also kind of messing with her. I mean, he definitely loves to mess with his mother, as, as many sons do. Yeah. But he's, in that period, you know, he conceals also how hard he's working on his craft. Because we think of Twain as this fun-loving character, but he's also a very serious writer. And he spends a lot of time alone in a room writing, uh, as any writer does. And this San Francisco period, the reason it's so important, I think, is not just because of the emergence of the lecture persona, but also because this these are the years where he's taking a deeper investment in literary craft and really opening up the resources that will allow him to become such a transformative figure in American literature. Mm-hmm.
0: So uh, you point out in an end note, I, I want to get into the whole Bret Hart and Mark Twain uh, rivalry yeah. and friendship and <laughs> you point out in an endnote that the precise cause of the break between Bret Hart and Mark Twain in the 1870s is really difficult to pinpoint. Uh, we know that Hart at this time was on the creative decline. Uh, he leaves California, and suddenly it's almost as if his voice is just totally gone. Uh, we know that Twain loaned him money. Uh, and that Hart commented upon Twain's lifestyle in some sense uh, when he was crashing at the Clemens' bed. But if much of this is speculation and we really don't know the precise reasons behind the squabble, I mean, what can any biographer, whether it be you or Margaret Duckett, who you who you cite, what do you bring to the table? I mean, what can we reasonably infer from this correspondence, or is it really essentially just good speculation?
1: Well, I think it is all speculative at this point, but I think we know that by the time they have their final break in 1877, there have been forces brewing for a long time. From the very beginning, from the first time they meet in San Francisco in the 1860s, these two have a very much a frenemy relationship. You know, it's a real love hate dynamic. I hate to use that word though, relationship, <laughs> it, because it's so much more. <laughs> it's true. Frenemy doesn't even begin to to cover it. But it's you know it's it's a complex relationship. Like more like I Claudius or something. There we go. That's a better that's a better reference. But they don't. It's not like that. They're ever loving each other the way that Twain and Howells love each other. I mean, this is a very particular kind of relationship. It's extremely competitive from the beginning. They're essentially neck and neck for many years. And when Hart overtakes Twain in this very dramatic way and becomes the most famous, highest-paid writer in America, Twain is deeply resentful of him for that. So we know that by the time things blow up completely in 1877— Both men have plenty of reasons to get angry. And I think, you know, whatever that inciting incident was, whether it was as as Twain suggests in the autobiography, some disparaging, sarcastic remark that Hart made about Twain's wife, or something else, we'll we'll never know for certain. But I think whatever it was, we we certainly know what that kind of mountain of of kindling looked like before they landed the spark on it.
0: The question is is whether that particular explosion was inevitable. I mean, because a lot of it came about because, well, Hart and Twain had a whole series of unexpected successes, and unexpected setbacks. Twain especially had great difficulty getting his books, uh, his early books put out. I mean, the first uh, attempted short story collection is a complete disaster by all reports, especially, and the loudest report, of course, is Twain bitching about it. So, I mean, you know, I'm wondering, you know, what, what do you think kindled that particular competition. Uh, why? Why did uh, Twain, who was buddy buddy with Hart, just immediately turn on him and, and see this guy as I, I'm better than him? I can do better. He shouldn't be the great California spokesman. I I can do that. Well, I think
1: Twain is a very competitive spirit, but I think we can shift a fair amount of the blame onto Brett Hart as well because he is someone who notoriously burns all his bridges. You know, comes from California to the east. And suddenly stops writing all of these good friends like Charles Stoddard and Ina Coolbrith, who he promised he was going to make connections for in the East, try to bring them over. He just completely burns his bridges. So he's known as someone who demolishes friendships. So it's not out of the question to just take Twain's word for it. Um, I think Twain would have been unusually sensitive, particularly if anything involved his wife. He would be yeah. very sensitive. There's certainly a record of that. But Hart, we always know that Hart had a sarcastic attitude. I mean, his irony is an indispensable part of his writing and certainly was a big part of his personality. But irony and sarcasm is you know, it's one of these things that in the right quantities, it can be charming. And then you just turn it up a little bit, and it becomes a bit of a problem. And other people report that happening with Hart once he relocates east. So I think even if Twain was a little bit sensitive, a lot of people
0: dislike Hart in this period. If I didn't know you any better, it seemed that you were possibly making a comparison between the death of irony in the 1860s and 1870s and the presumed death of irony after September (laughs) 11th. I think irony never went away. I don't think it did either. Um, I wanted to talk also about Bret Hart's wife, uh, Anna Griswold Hart. Mm. Um, Doesn't come across very well in this book generally doesn't come across well in any book. Uh, You write that she may not deserve the scathing descriptions left by her husband's friends over the years, although the sheer number of them suggests that there is some truth to their collective portrait of her as jealous, tyrannical, pretentious, stubborn, sullen, and shrewish. Well, if she doesn't deserve the treatment, sir, well, what good things can we say about Anna Hart? I mean, Brett, we know, he's at home. He's a good father. He enjoys playing with the kids. Uh, but given the vanity that he expresses later in life, that some of which we have alluded to, and the maxim that it does indeed take two to tango, I mean, how much of Anna's purported uh, sullenness is on Brett? That's, I think that's a fair
1: point. I mean, I think it's, look, it's an unhappy marriage by any measure. And it's, you know, it's always hard to ascertain blame in a relationship that's not working. Um, clearly, both of them are contributing heavily uh, i think they're they're not a good match i think you get the sense over the years particularly as hart becomes better known that his wife resents his success and is in some way jealous of the time it takes and the attention that he's getting there are a lot of reports of her trying to undermine him in in subtle and explicit ways walking into the office and
0: interrupting him talking <laughs> to him as he's trying to work being a one key one
1: right yeah i mean and you know and some of them feel kind of funny like walking into the office and saying you have to come with me on a shopping trip but there's a lot of reports particularly from Bret Hart's mother who's not an impartial observer but is one source saying that you know she wears the life out of him that any moment that he can take for his writing he's constantly being interrupted on the other hand Bret Hart was not always a very pleasant guy himself and as you said had a lot of arrogance had a lot of vanity and despite his devotion to his children, I think he was a decent father while he was still with the family. Uh, there's clearly a lot of tension between him and his wife. So it's hard to know how to proportion the blame perfectly. But.
0: Well, what what good things can we say about Anna? I mean, is there anything that you dug up here? I mean, I'm, I'm certain if if I'm going to—if if I were a biographer and I were going to dig into someone's life, I would try to find if they have been presented as— villainous over the years, something that, was, that, that made them a little bit more human. They're not just some sort of black and white caricature as other people present them. I mean, what, I mean what, did you find anything in digging through all the papers and all that? Or? Well, Twain takes Anna's side, interestingly. He, you know,
1: in the autobiography in particular, his account of his freak out at Bret Hart at the end of their relationship in 1877, one of the things he gives Bret a hard time for is being a bad husband of leaving Anna alone for long stretches, of borrowing irresponsibly, and eventually of abandoning the family when Brett Hart goes to Europe um, to work for the State Department in Germany, which he does. I mean, Hart completely abandons his family and, and cuts those ties. Um, he has some relationship with his children later, but he really, um, he really does flee his family. So I think you can also see her as a victim of some of his... Um, some of his shenanigans, and certainly his, his vanity and his tendency to
0: burn bridges. Yeah. Did, did she possibly contribute in any way towards his sense of aristocracy that we see? I mean, there's one late effort where he insists upon a car when he goes to the East Coast, and everybody is like, oh, come on, this guy doesn't deserve a cab. Uh, he doesn't deserve this kind of, i mean, what? why does this guy think he's entitled to everything? Plus, the one thing you haven't mentioned in terms of the difference between Hart and Twain is, well, we've established that— the way that Twain looked, the kind of rumpled suit and all that, but but Hart of course, dressed as a sophisticated, uh, he had these elaborate sideburns in one such photo in your book, which i' that's right. uh, is, is almost a kind of proto hipster if, <laughs> if you will I like that um, <laughs> uh, so so there's, this, there's these there's this kind of dandified quality to him, and I'm wondering you know where did that come from that's definitely true. I mean,
1: people talk about brett 's uh, aristocratic airs, You know, from a fairly early age, when he is wandering through northern California on his own in his early 20s in the 1850s, people talk about seeing him in these kind of mining camps. And who is this dandy who is wearing these kind of leather gloves and has this um, very foppish look to him? So that's something that precedes Anna. But I think Anna could could have easily reinforced because she comes from a family um, that was richer than Brett's that had some money, some prestige. And I think she was used to living a certain lifestyle, and I think she would have certainly brought some of that taste to uh, to Brett. But it does, as, as you mentioned, it becomes a bit of a liability later. Yeah. you know, um, Tw-
0: when, <laughs> when the checks aren't coming in. <laughs> when the checks
1: aren't coming in, he's still buying a lot of clothes. Yeah. Twain, as usual, has a lot of wonderfully devastating quotes on Hart's fashion sense, about how he always needed to stay more fashionable than the ultra-fashionables. He's always one step ahead in terms of his dress. And eventually he can't pay for it. and becomes a problem.
0: But Twain isn't exactly an angel either uh, in relation to Hart. I do have to mention Ah Sin, this play in which Hart and Twain collaborated on. Uh, It builds from the heathen Chinese, which started off as a sort of satirical story, but which was, in fact, advocated in in a kind of racist light by a lot of readers. So they do this play... It gives into this racist commercial impulse. Uh, it's a regrettable backslide into racist Chinese stereotypes on Twain's part, especially because he stood against racism when he was in San Francisco. Uh, he, he he dissented against racism towards the Chinese, um, and yet here he is, not long after that, and uh, and he's just essentially. Gone back on his principles. Were you able to locate any late life papers of Twain, essentially recanting his involvement with Lost Sin? I mean, why was he so keen to really sell out on his on his principles like this for a bankable commercial production? It's a good question. It's really a
1: disappointing low point for both of them because, as you mentioned, both Bret Hart and Mark Twain had been vocal advocates against. Anti-Chinese racism in San Francisco, of which there was a lot, and then when they get together, they write this really awful play. I mean, a terrible play with this racist caricature at the center, played in yellowface as they called it by this white actor, Charles Parslow. Still uh, in evidence in the Cloud Atlas movie. <laughs> right, I didn't. Yeah, I missed yeah, that. <laughs> yeah, unfortunately. But it, yeah, it's it's a real betrayal, I think, of their principles. And it's, uh, it's very disappointing for, for both of them. I think the hope, especially for Hart, is that it would make him some much-needed money. You know, that writing for the stage in those years was, was considered a pretty easy way to get paid, and you didn't have to work very hard at it. So they collaborate briefly at Twain's house in Hartford, and the split happens, and then Twain really shuts Hart out of the process. Yeah. Rewrites the play considerably and makes it, if possible, even more racist. Yeah, yeah. Um, and puts it on, and it has a very brief run, and then it collapses. And then Twain, you know, he never really expresses regret for that moment. He says, in this letter to Howells afterwards, that after the play has closed, that you know, he's he says, poor Parslow, who's the actor who plays the uh, the the main irredeemably racist stereotype at the center. So he feels sorry for the actor that the play closed so quickly. Yeah. But if possible, he would have liked to inflict even more pain on Bret Hart, which he proceeds to try to do by trying to block Hart's appointment to a consular position in Germany. And yeah. thankfully, Twain fails at
0: that, and Hart gets the appointment. Yeah. Well, that, I mean, this, that is fascinating to me. It's almost as if his vengeance for Hart absolutely overshadows any of the humanism that he would display, even in his most scathing writing. And that to me is, is I mean, it's, again, goes. I have to repeat my last question, which we didn't quite answer. I mean, is there any kind of documentation of Twain, uh, I suppose, beating himself up over, over this at all, both in terms of heart and in terms of having to go ahead and just really go into some really atavistic waters here with the, with the Chinese racism?
1: Well, there are certainly people around Twain who are urging him to take a softer tone with Hart. His wife is one of them. His wife tells him, you know, why do you have to be so terrible to Hart? Why do you have to say such terrible things about him? He's so miserable and we're so happy. William Dean Howells, who is, of course, a very close friend of Twain, but had also been a friend of Hart's, is a bit of a mediator between them. And even though Howells had had his own falling out with Hart— is always kinder and gentler on that subject and is trying to get Twain to be a little bit more reasonable. The thing to keep in mind about Twain is that he's extremely vengeful. He can be very, very warm, and he's a very loyal person. But if he feels that his trust has been betrayed, he will hate you with a passion to the grave. Yeah. And his autobiography is a real testament to that because hundreds of pages of it, and it's, as you mentioned, yeah. this enormous three-volume work, is taken up with detailing his grudges yeah. in an incredible level of detail and, and total recall as well. Yeah, Howells has a great line in his memoir of, of Twain about how Twain's rage would follow his enemies to the grave, you know, and that he would hate them more after they died because it felt like they were trying to get away, you know, that he would want to dig them up and still, you know, you think he would be happy. Exactly. I mean, he, so his anger is not to be underestimated. Yeah. On the other hand, neither is his love. I mean, he's a man of extreme emotions. He's deeply loyal to his friends and his wife and his wife. They have a wonderful
0: relationship. But his rage is a very scary thing. Yeah. And he blames also himself for mm, his son's so death, even though terrible. it was not, himself, not his fault, the diphtheria thing. Um, I, I, I know that we've talked a lot about Hart and Twain. I don't want to uh, overshadow the other figures. Uh, Charles Warren Stoddard, we've mentioned him a couple of times. Uh, he was, in some ways, the West Coast answer to Walt Whitman. I mean, like Whitman, he was also gay. Uh, he went off to a far-off region. Whitman had Brooklyn. Charles Stoddard had uh, Hawaii. But he also had to go to this place to find his voice. Uh, Yet he also was curious because he had this autograph album where he asked writers to sign. And then he does this really extraordinary thing years later where he sends these letters to Longfellow, to Emerson, to uh, Tennyson, to Darwin. And he asks them for feedback on his poetry. And he actually gets good feedback. I mean, like, you know, some people saying, ah, this is junk, and some people saying, oh, there's some promise here. This leads me to ask, well, what was it about uh, Stoddard that that I mean, did he need the West Coast uh, more than he needed the approval? Did the West Coast kind of encourage this impulse of being almost a sort of, like, memento seeker in order to to kind of advance in his own art? I mean, what was the dynamic here? Well, he's
1: he's a writer who needs a lot of validation. Yeah. Uh, He Craves mentor figures. He has this autograph album and he goes around, including Thomas Stark King, who actually inscribes the first item in it. And he also hits up Bret Hart, who somewhat begrudgingly contributes as well, and then writes to these people all around uh, the world, really. Um, And he he needs encouragement. I mean, he is a very vulnerable writer in the stage. He's unsure of his poetry and he's desperate for. Uh, for support, for moral support, and for some type of constructive criticism. So he finds locally in Thomas Stark King, and especially in Bret Hart, very, uh, very useful mentor figures who really
0: help him develop his voice. Yeah. But I mean, I, the, why did he have to go to California and Hawaii in order to really get his art out? I mean, did he need the... Uh... All of the uh, the exotic adventures that he had to Hawaii it was I mean it was he needed to be almost a sensualist to to get that sensualism onto the page. What was this? I mean, it's it's like he couldn't find it through the autograph album, but he could find it through just really going to the absolute far end of, the, of what would eventually be the United States.
1: Well, he loves Hawaii. I mean, the first yeah. time he goes there in eighteen sixty four, he's recovering from essentially a nervous breakdown yeah. after this very challenging semester at school where he, he you know he tries he blows it, it. he blows it and he blows it again and again i mean he tries desperately to become a good student you know he wants to be able to go to secondary school to go to college uh, out in san francisco but he just he can't do it you know he just doesn't have the powers of concentration he can't study he hates it And he's fairly fragile emotionally at that point. So he has this nervous breakdown. He goes to Hawaii, and it's really in Hawaii that he discovers this entire new world. I mean, most importantly, Hawaii is a place where he can be gay. He has relationships with young Hawaiian boys, young men. And he also starts to write about his experiences in prose. So he moves past his earlier poetry, and he writes these wonderful, irreverent, very fun travel sketches, yeah, uh, which he eventually compiles into a book called *The South Sea Idols*, and all of this with Bret Hart's encouragement. So Hart is really the the teacher, that kind of training him towards this breakthrough. Um, so Hawaii, you know, for Stoddard, I think it's it's hugely important both personally and professionally. It's the place where he can. Really engage with his sexuality, and it's also the place that gives him the material for his best literary work.
0: Why couldn't he transgress in San Francisco?
1: Well, he probably did. I mean, as you can imagine, the the materials on this, the sources are are limited. Yeah. I'm, I'm sure. I mean, there's cases of him having relationships, kind of close friendships, um, much as Whitman did. Uh, with other boys in the in the Bay Area, so he almost certainly did. I mean, it's possible that he had had sexual experiences before he went to Hawaii. But Hawaii gives him much, much more freedom. Um, and also he he loves the the local culture. he um you know he loves what he considers the kind of sensuality and the lushness both of the landscape and the people. I mean, Stoddard, a bit like Gauguin uh, decades later is not necessarily an objective observer of Hawaiian culture. I mean, he is bringing a lot of his own preconceived notions about primitivism, um, about, you know, these are—he infantilizes them, these are kind of childish barbarians, but so am I. So he's, he's looking for something and projecting a fair amount of his own prejudices about Native cultures onto that. But I think it's also possible that he develops authentic friendships and more than friendships with local Hawaiians.
0: Ina Colberth, who we have also mentioned, she remarked that Bret Hart had urged Stoddard and her to join him on the uh, join him when he went to the East. You had mentioned that earlier. Uh, Hart rebuffs both of them, uh, and he remains relatively silent once he's set up on the East Coast. Uh, you write that Ina Colbert's voice in 1870 wasn't good enough to attract a wider readership, that her contribution to the bohemian scene had been less literary than personal, but In 1911, Coolberth became the first California Poet Laureate and the first laureate of any state in the United States. Surely the combination of being a woman and of being a poet Possibly had more to do with Coolbert not getting the recognition. I mean, 1875, she's got you know when the grass shall cover me. So, mm-hmm. so why do you think? Um, why why would you write that statement out of curiosity? I, mean, I think she was more than just a a groupie, essentially. Oh no, I, I wouldn't
1: want to call her a groupie. I think the the fact is that she has far less time to devote to her writing than these other figures do, and that has everything to do with the fact that she is a woman. Yeah, that she is given a lot of responsibilities by her family in terms of domestic responsibilities, and the really crushing death blow in this is when her father abandons the family, leaves uh, her mother there, her ailing, fragile mother, for Ina to take care of, and then another male poet named Joaquin Miller deposits his teenage daughter on her doorstep and says, you have to raise her, and then her sister dies— Agnes, and her, Agnes's two children, who are now orphans, come and move in with Ina. So now she has this huge household to support, and that's why she takes a job as a librarian in Oakland in 1874, and the hours are grueling. You know, it's 12 hours a day, six days a week. She writes about it as a tomb, a prison. She talks about her convict life, writes these very melancholy letters to Charles Stoddard. So I'd stress that her limitations as a writer, I think, are have more to do with the amount of time she was allowed to spend writing and less to do with any innate talent. Because I think when you look at her poetry um, compared to the work of, you know, I'd say Stoddard's South Sea Idols and certainly the work of, of Bret Hart and Mark Twain, I'd argue that it doesn't quite achieve that quality.
0: Mm. Mm. So in that case, what we're basically talking about is someone who could have been uh, a great poet who was not allowed to because of being stuck in this tomb.
1: And and she's very, very vocal on that subject. I mean, that's certainly what she believes is that she was she was given all of these relatives to support. She was given this terrible convict life to live. And, and I think she's rightfully very angry at how this turns out. I mean, she writes Stoddard about you get to wander the world and write as much as you want and so does Brett and I just have to sit here while I read about your guys' adventures in the paper yeah. um, That's very so depressing It's extremely depressing, and which is not to say She doesn't have other interesting experiences She develops a friendship with the young Jack London yes. And is very formative in his Literary development
0: And, wa- and London walks right in and gets a, uh, a Pizarro, I believe, uh, he gets a Pizarro book, and he says later, wow You know, you went ahead and you didn't ask any Question, you encouraged me to read, thank you You're Yeah,
1: right. he. I mean, he really He talks about her as his literary mother Essentially, yeah. as the woman who encouraged him to read. Who would always give him reading recommendations. He would spend many afternoons uh, in the reading room of the Oakland Public Library. So she's a very influential force for later California writers as well. Uh huh.
0: So the sense I get with Bret Hart is that his talent seemed to fade the minute that his looks began to fade, and the minute that he left California. Uh, you know, I- I'm wondering, you know, why he dissolved. So, seemingly immediately, at least as presented in your particular overview, i mean i 've read a few other things, and it seems to match match up with this. but uh, what do you think ultimately uh, caused this to happen? Well,
1: I think there are a few factors i mean he in California, he has a literary scene that supports him and that inspires him, that sustains him, I think, both personally and as a writer in the east Coast he's really as twain says a man without a country yeah. he's living in a kind of internal exile in the east he hasn't been uh, to that part of the country for years he doesn't recognize it it's in the midst of its post civil war industrialization and he writes these letters about you know what happened to the orchards and farms of my youth he, he doesn't recognize the country he's in, and it's very hard for him to put down roots and feel settled in the East, as Twain finally manages to do in Hartford, Connecticut. So, you know, not to use—there's an analogy of—I'm uh, forgetting who makes this analogy, but that he essentially can't take root in the East. It's almost like taking a plant from California and trying to put it in a different climate. Yeah. Um, a few
0: writers make that analogy. mm mm-hmm. So you mentioned how Coolbirth had inspired other writers. Uh, I actually want to get Ambrose Bierce into this. I mean, he gets into the San Francisco scene much later than Hart and Twain. Uh, And you write that like the middle Americans of the innocents abroad, Bierce was a creature of the new industrialism. Um, Is it safe to say that when Bierce arrived in California, he arrived too late to have this kind of Uh, symbiotic relationship with California, to be one of the innovators, that there was this tension between the discovery of gold and even the growth of innovative writing? How how did this work? Well, I think Bierce manages to become a very important
1: figure in California and and spends a long long time there. I mean, he's there, you know, he works for the San Francisco Examiner, and he's he's there really for the bulk of his uh, adult professional life. And I think there are a lot of influences on Bierce from writers like Bret Hart. You know, when you read Bierce's short stories about the Civil War, which are fantastic, I think you can see a lot of the influence of The Luck of Roaring Camp and other of those Hart stories in terms of this use of a very precise, very sly, very dark irony, which is derived in many ways from frontier humor, and this commitment to to realism, to really showing this ordinary life as it is, and not in a, in a romanticized or sentimentalized way. So I think Bierce, you know, Bierce befriends all of these figures. He does come in to the tail end of the Bohemian scene, so he doesn't
0: quite reach the inner circle. But, but Bierce gets in there and he's almost, the, the I would argue, the father to the monkey block writers, all of the wonderful pulp writers that came in like the 1920s, and 1930s, in the exact same place where the Transamerica Pyramid now actually sits there, which yes. you didn't get to in your book. No, but.
1: unfortunately. A terrible act of architectural vandalism. They, yeah. they tore down the Montgomery yeah. block. It's really like kind of the Penn Station of San Francisco, I would say, in terms of that the demolition of that building It's terrible. Uh, have you read the Fritz Leiber
0: book on on this? I haven't. No, oh, it's, I, I it's a really it. it's a really good one. It's a, it, basically it's uh, the Transamerica Pyramid is haunted, uh, and it involves all of these writers. As oh, well. that's great. Yeah, it's it's, it's anyway. Uh, so I, I have a last question for you. Um, so what do you think is the closest thing today mm. to to the 1860s and 1870s of San Francisco in terms of literary movements, in terms of writers who are really taking risks and trying to create a a bona fide movement that could actually really influence the direction of literature.
1: Well, I think there are a lot of great writers, and I think there are a lot of writers who are trying to influence the direction of literature. I think when it comes to a literary scene, it's a little bit of a different landscape today. I mean, one of the features that made San Francisco such a great place to develop a literary scene is its isolation. You know, it takes a while to get there. Uh, and that creates this kind of cultural scarcity where people really have to connect face to face and and work together to build these literary papers. Now I think it's a much more diffuse, dispersed movement. Obviously, the internet is is a major factor in that. But you know I, I think about it a lot in terms of, how bands get together you know like the rolling stones that these were the guys who they all listened to these records and nobody else did and these days i think with the internet it's so easy to build these much broader more diffuse networks that those face-to-face interactions of that excitement of like oh you like this so do i which is is kind of the seed of any cultural scene that kind of incredible density and excitement over shared discoveries I think that's a little bit less possible today.
0: Less possible, even though there are far more means of expression to all parts of the world, to all types of people. You think that that just can't actually reproduce itself, even in a digital form, that there needs to be a sort of physical space, that there needs to be some sort of, I guess, trading of manuscripts or something? I mean, I I see some of that going on, too.
1: No, I, I mean, look, I think great literary scenes can emerge through... It doesn't have to be face to face, certainly. But, I, but when I think about the Bohemians in San Francisco in the 1860s, it's hard to imagine that type of, of moment reproducing itself today. Yeah. Which is not to say that people all over the country are producing really interesting li- literary, you know, li- little magazines, and they're doing that face to face. But you don't need to be face to face anymore. And something is gained, certainly, and something is lost.
0: Sure. Enough. Well, Ben, thanks very much. This was a lot of fun. Take thanks so much for having me. I really appreciate it. Great. Caught in the landslide,
1: escape from reality. Open your eyes. Look up to the skies and
0: see